Amen. Well, good morning, everyone. Um, Merry early Christmas and grace and peace to you. Um, it's sometimes hard to laugh at ourselves. I don't know if you can relate to that experience. It's hard sometimes to laugh at ourselves. We can become um, self-serious and concerned with how we appear in the eyes of others. And therefore, um, any recognition of our weakness or of our foolishness or anything like that um, is just not tolerated, right? We don't want to go there and we don't want to be seen that way in the eyes of others. And so we have to save appearances and we have to show our competence and wisdom no matter what the case um, actually is. And it's just the fear of being humbled or simply the fear of humiliation. But as long as we refuse to laugh at ourselves, we are in this position of self-justification. That is, not accepting the truth about who we are. But on the other hand, to laugh about ourselves, or to laugh at ourselves rather, is to repent. Now I don't mean laughing in the sense of um, mocking at sin, but at ourselves, laughing at our delusions of grandeur, supposing ourselves to be something before God and others. To laugh in that sense is to repent. It's to free ourselves from an overinflated ego. And that's where God wants us to be, constantly before him in that place of laughter. Not mounting our defenses and putting on a show of strength before God, but as we truly are, uh, vulnerable and helpless creatures. We need to learn to laugh at our wisdom, which is foolishness before God. To laugh at our strength, which is weakness, and our honor, which is shame. Because the joke is on us, and either we learn to join the laughter and receive salvation, or to turn away, retaining our supposed dignity, but leaving empty-handed. And that's the lesson um, that our passage teaches us this morning. In fact, not just our passage, but the entire life of Abraham, which we're going to survey. Isaac is finally born, the promise is delivered, and Sarah says, God has made laughter for me. Abraham had to learn that God had no interest in his strength or his wisdom, but that in fact what God wanted from Abraham was his weakness. God has chosen the weak and foolish things of the world, and that's taught to us through the birth of Isaac, whose name means laughter. And his birth, of course, prefigures Jesus. Jesus is God's joke upon the world, upon our pride and wisdom. He invites us to laugh at our pretensions and to join his son in the humble manger. So we'll get there. But let's begin first with setting the context and um, the stage for Abraham's life and, and the journey that God is going to take him on. And Abraham's calling, which we find in Genesis 12, is set against the backdrop of Genesis 11 and the infamous story of the Tower of Babel. And in many ways, what God intends to do through Abraham is a counter-answer to what the nations attempted to achieve in their city and tower. 
God brings it to nothing and restarts the project, so to speak. And the Babel narrative there in Genesis 11 opens on an ominous note. In verse 2 of Genesis chapter 11, if you'd like to turn there, um, we're given the direction of their travels. In verse 2 of chapter 11, it says that they journeyed east. They journeyed east. Now, it seemed harmless enough, right, journeying east. But to head east, in fact, is to flee from the Lord's presence. If you find someone heading east in the scriptures, it's typically not a good thing. In Genesis chapter 2, verse 8, it says that God planted a garden toward the east in Eden. So what we call the Garden of Eden. Now, Eden is not the name of the garden, but it's the region that the garden was planted in, and it was planted toward the east. Now, when the man and the woman listened to the voice of the serpent and took the forbidden fruit and ate from it, the scripture says, Genesis 3.24, God drove the man out at the east, and then he stationed the cherubim there to guard the way to the tree of life. So the garden is planted in the east. The man and the woman are expelled toward the east. And then when their son, Cain, murders his brother, Abel, Genesis 4.16 says, Cain went out from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. In other words, heading east is symbolic for humanity's estrangement from its original purpose, from the garden where they experienced fellowship with God. The further east you go, the further you are from the Lord's presence. And here, presumably, with the people um, In the Tower of Babel, the human race has never been further east in the plains of Shinar. And so we have then between the garden back toward the west and the Tower of Babel toward the east are two polar opposites. They represent opposing purposes and destinies, two ways of being in the world. The Tower is essentially an anti-garden. It's a photo negative of what God was doing with Adam and Eve there in the garden. It's a parody on God's original purpose for humanity. God planted a garden. He came down and planted a garden, and man built a tower to reach heaven. And that was its purpose, right? To reach heaven, so to speak. To unite the human race under one lip and one tongue. To create a utopia, in other words. Heaven on earth. But God came down to the would-be world empire, and he scattered it by confusing their tongues. Hence, Babel, the original name for the city and the tower, it means the gate of the gods or the gate of heaven. It's a precursor to the later Babylon. And it's an indication, right, of their purpose, the gate of the gods. Well, the Uh, author of Genesis, Moses, takes the word Babel and he relates it to the Hebrew word Balal, which means confusion. And a central aim of the project there in the plains of Shinar, um, in their own words, chapter 11, verse 4, was to make a name for themselves. 
And so in the end, rather than the honorable name that they sought, the gate of the gods, they are given an ironic one, confusion. The tower, the anti-garden project that man started is brought to nothing. It's brought to confusion before God. So the, human's race, the human race's attempt to make a name for itself came crashing down. Then immediately, after the story of Babel, as soon as it ends, we're swept along into another genealogy. And that genealogy, um, at the end of the story of Babel, begins with Shem. Right? We talked about Shem last week. Um, and do you guys know what Shem's name means? It's a real creative. Shem means name. In other words, Shem, or name, is the beginning of God's anti-Babel project. Why did they gather there in the plains of Shinar? To make a name for themselves, and God gave them another name. He brought it to confusion. And then we begin with Shem, name. And he is the start of God's Babel project. Through Shem, God is going to make a great name for the human race, not an ironic one. And then if we trace this genealogy of Shem, Noah's son, down through the ages, ten generations, we arrive at Abram, whose name is later changed to Abraham. And God promises to Abraham, Genesis 12, 2, I will make your name great. What humanity attempted to achieve in the tower, God will do through Abraham, uniting the human race. Abraham is the next chapter in this long story of that original promise in the garden. Abraham's genealogy traces backward ten steps to Shem, Noah's son, and then Noah, ten more generations to Adam. Abraham is carrying on God's original purpose for creation. So, what the human race attempted to achieve In the tower, a universal empire, heaven on earth, God will accomplish through Abraham, who is the father of all who believe, the father of the church. Let's look at the call now. It says, Now the Lord said to Abram, this is Genesis 12, verse 1, Go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land that I will show you. I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and so you shall be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. God promises Abraham three things in this initial call. First, a great name and a great nation. Second, a dwelling place for this nation. He promises him land. And three, that this nation that would come from the loins of Abraham would bring blessing to all other nations, or as it has it in the verse, all other families of the earth. So the redemptive plans begun there in the garden, Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, he will crush your head and you shall bruise his heel. That redemptive plan comes to a bottleneck here in the story of Abraham. Genesis 1 through 11 are universal in scope, dealing with all the human race. But Genesis 12 through 50, the rest of the story on, deals with one man and his descendants, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and his 12 sons. So it's not that God has abandoned the nations. Instead, 
His plan has changed, and he's determined to bring blessing to the nations, but now through this one man and his seed. So in Abraham, through his descendants, that's the nation Israel, and more particularly through his descendant, Jesus, God will crush the head of the serpent and bring blessing to all the world. And therein lies our hope, what the season of Christmas is all about. The birth of the promised seed come to bless the families of the earth. If we fast forward to the New Testament, Galatians 3.16, the Apostle Paul says, Now the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. He does not say, and to seeds, as referring to many, but rather to one and to your seed, that is Christ. So Christmas, what we celebrate today, the remainder of the week, is the celebration that God has come good on his promise to Abraham. He has established his anti-Babel kingdom, uniting the human race in Jesus. Jesus brings the blessing. So, there's a little bit of the story of Abraham, or this setup. This is what God intends to achieve through Abraham, to bring blessing to all the world. So God wonderfully reaffirms his promise of the seed back in the garden, and he guarantees for the human race a future and a hope. But, here's the most strange and ridiculous thing of all, he commits this promise, the future of the human race, to a couple, Abraham and Sarah, virtually dead. That is, to a dried-up old man and to his barren wife. In other words, hope is led to a deliberate dead end by God. In Romans chapter 4, the Apostle Paul talks about this, and he speaks of the body of Abraham as, as good as dead. And he refers to the deadness of Sarah's womb. That's Romans four nineteen. So this promise that God makes to Abraham and his wife is under the gun from the beginning. And they are summoned to trust in a word, to trust in a promise That is beyond reason or possibility. He says to the dead couple, you are going to bear descendants, a descendant who will bless the world. Or as the Apostle Paul says in Romans 4.18, he summoned them to believe in hope against hope. They're summoned to believe in God's promise in hope against hope. And that's the way it is. God calls us to hope to trust in Him when there is no good reason to hope. When there is no good reason to believe. When there are no outward signs or tokens of this realization. Hope is not optimism. Right? Optimism deals in probabilities and figures. The odds are in my favor, therefore it's reasonable to be optimistic. That's not hope. Hope oftentimes is beyond optimism. It's beyond good sense. It's beyond probability. Instead, back to Romans 4, the apostle says, We believe in him who gives life to the dead and calls into being that which does not exist. 
So our hope then is not rooted in the natural course of events, however unexpected, or whatever the probability or the odds are. Hope instead is rooted in the strength of God's power to raise the dead and to call into being that which does not exist. And so there Abraham is and his wife, virtually dead, And God puts them in the position, makes the promise to them of hoping against hope. Or in other words, believing for resurrection. Believing from life from the dead. Hence, the Apostle Paul says that Abraham is the father of all who believe. In other words, his faith was the same nature as ours. Resurrection faith. Our faith is not built on the probability that there is a God, this, that, or the other. Our faith is ultimately built on a dead man, Jesus Christ, no life in him. God raised him from the dead. And so let that serve as a reminder of who our God is, the God of resurrection. In other words... No matter what things look like, no matter what they appear to, to the eye, they are never, ever beyond hope. In fact, true hope, that is resurrection hope, begins when false hope, the odds, the probabilities, the way things appear, when that kind of hope has been extinguished. It's in fact when, the, when we come to that end of worldly hope that we're brought to true hope. That we're finally trusting in him who raises the dead and who calls things into existence that had not before. And so God makes this promise to Abraham. And what he does through the promise is call forth or summons faith from him. He calls him to believe in something that could otherwise not happen. And then what he proceeds to do is put that promise to the test. He inspires faith in Abraham and then tests his faith. It's reminiscent of his great-grandson, Joseph. Psalm 105, verse 19, speaking of Joseph, it says that the word of the Lord tested him. And if you're familiar at all with Joseph's story, you know that to be true. Joseph was given a dream, a prophetic word where he saw his 11 brothers and even his mother and father bowing before him. Joseph um, told them, and they weren't happy. His brothers sold him into slavery, and we don't need to tell his whole story. It's a long and winding one, but the point is he obtained that promise at length through much patience. God gave him the promise. He inspired faith within Joseph and then cultivated that seed of faith, drawing it out and putting it through the paces. Now, in the moment, there's no way that Joseph understood the reason for his many grievous trials. Being sold into slavery by his jealous and hating brothers. Being cast into prison by the schemes of Potiphar's wife. But he trusted. He believed the word that God had given him. And when that word came good, his faith was vindicated and his understanding was satisfied. 
You know the verse, Genesis 50, 20. Joseph now speaking to his brothers on the far side of the fulfillment of his vision, says, As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, in order to bring about this present result to preserve many people alive. The word of the Lord tested him, and his faith was vindicated. So faith is then one, trusting in the promise, even when it's far off. Even when God has to resurrect Joseph from the grave of prison and exalt him to the right hand of Pharaoh. It's trusting when the promise is far off. And two, trusting that the delay and the interruption and all this is ultimately for our good. We hope for the return of Jesus and the day when all of our tears are wiped away. But... This is church, right? Let's be honest. That sometimes seems like a very distant promise. And it sometimes feels unreal to our faltering hearts. Nevertheless, like Abraham, like Joseph, like all the great men and women of faith, we trust in God, being fully assured that what he promised, no matter how we feel, no matter what it looks like, What he promised, he is able to perform. And though that road to the new heavens and the new earth baffles us in the way it takes, God has to lead us like Joseph through the pit and into prison. We trust that every twist and turn is working together for our good, that we can stand and say, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. We are being tested by the word of the Lord. So, let us not give up hope, but instead hope against all hope. God has already come through on his promise, the first advent of Jesus Christ. He's given us that down payment of assurance, and he puts his return before us, his second advent, and he tests us through his word. He will come through again. But, like our faith, um, Abraham's faith was not always up to the test. God makes the promise in Genesis 12, and then immediately, right after he makes it, Abraham wanders into Egypt, and because he's afraid that Pharaoh's going to kill him and take his wife, he tells Sarah, say that you're my sister, and so on and so forth. And Pharaoh takes Sarah, and God has to intervene to... um, deliver Sarah from the hands of Pharaoh. Otherwise, this promise would have come to naught. Abraham does that at the beginning, right as the promise is given. And then right before the promise is fulfilled in Genesis 21, Abraham does it again at the end of Genesis 20 with um, King Abimelech in Gerar. The same scene, he gives her away, and again, God has to intervene and says, Abimelech, you're a dead man if you touch her. And so, obviously, the lesson is that even when we're faithless, God remains faithful. He protects his promise. But the principal failed test for Abraham comes in Genesis 16 with Sarah offering her maidservant, Hagar, to Abraham in order that he would bear this promised seed, this promised child. 
And given the customs and manners of the time, that seems like a reasonable solution. They needed to have an heir for the family estate, so on and so forth. So that was often what would happen. They're probably thinking this resurrection business is not so necessary, right? Maybe, maybe we're blowing things out of proportion. Let's just use the means that we have. And they faltered, and they offered up their own efforts in fulfillment of the divine promise. And what's so fascinating and mind-blowing about the way the story is told is that it's the original sin in the garden all over again, repeated blow by blow. Look at verse 16, 2. It says, So Sarah said to Abraham, Sarai said to Abram, excuse me, Now behold, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Please go into my maid. Perhaps I will obtain children through her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. It's the man and the woman in the garden. Remember um, our sermon on Cain and Abel and what was Adam's fault in the garden. Genesis 3.17, God confronts him and says, because you listened to the voice of your wife. Now, it's not that listening to your wife is bad. It's that um, (laughs) Eve was deceived by the serpent, and therefore she became a deceiver. And Abraham, or excuse me, Adam listened. And that is exactly what happens here. Sarai is deceived and therefore becomes a deceiver, and Abram listened to the voice of his wife. He listened to the voice of the serpent, and he did not fear God, allowing him to determine what is good and evil. And then the next couple of verses, 3 and 4, After Abram lived ten years in the land of Canaan, Abram's wife, Sarah, took Hagar, the Egyptian, her maid, and gave her to her husband, Abraham as his wife, he went into Hagar and she conceived. It's the same sequence. Eve, when she saw that the tree was good for food, she took took of its fruit and ate, and she gave it to her husband and he ate. Sarah took Hagar the Egyptian and she gave her to her husband and he went into Hagar. This incident is the lowest ebb in Abraham's journey from promise to completion. He has succumbed to the serpent, and he's given up the faith, as it were, and he's acted from the flesh. And that's the hardest part about God's promises, because they are his work from beginning to end. Our role is never to take matters into our own hands, to listen to the voice of the serpent and seize the forbidden fruit. It's to wait and trust for God to bring his own promise to pass. The word of the Lord tested him. And after a long 13 years of silence, God appeared to Abraham once more. And he again reiterates this original promise. That's Genesis 17. And he changes his name from Abram to Abraham, meaning the father of a multitude. Sarah's dead womb will be resurrected. The barren woman will be made fruitful. And her name is changed too from Sarai to Sarah, meaning princess. This old, nameless couple will be the progenitors of kings and queens, of a great and mighty nation, and even the promised seed, 
the Messiah, Christ Jesus the Lord. And then comes, after all this great promise, this reiteration of God's faithfulness, then comes the institution of circumcision. God commands Abraham and all the males of his house to get the snip as a sign of his covenant promise with them. Now, the meaning of circumcision has often puzzled readers, but it's not a coincidence that it comes on the heels of this Hagar-Ishmael incident. Abraham acted in the flesh. He listened to the voice of the serpent and used his own power to try and bring about the promise. And now, God reaffirms the promise, and he commands Abraham to remove the flesh. The rite of circumcision is symbolic for the entirety of Abraham's life up to this point. The rite of circumcision is cutting away of the flesh. And that's what Abraham's doing. He's cutting away his trust in the flesh. His trust in his own natural power and potency. And now Abraham is becoming a man who can rely on God's power to accomplish God's promises. And so here we have a turning point, or the turning point, in Abraham's life. He becomes a spiritual man. Now in the scriptures, a circumcised body part, it becomes sort of a metaphor, circumcision does. A circumcised body part is that body part functioning in proper relationship to God. For instance, Moses, when God summons him to lead the children of Israel out of Egypt, he balks at it and he steps away and he says... I cannot speak for you because I am a man of uncircumcised lips. His lips can't be used in service to God. Or Jeremiah, he speaks about, the prophet Jeremiah speaks about uncircumcised ears, meaning they're they're dull of spiritual hearing. They can't hear the voice of God. Or he also talks about an uncircumcised heart, meaning it's hardened toward the will of God and therefore unable to render obedience. But when an organ is circumcised, ears, heart, or whatever, it's put in proper relation to God. And now it's fit for his service and for his use. And Abraham's circumcision is emblematic, then, for his reorientation to God. Abraham is now, at last, giving up his control. He's giving up his self-assertion. This idea that he needs to take the promise into his own hands, that aspect of him and his heart is cut away. It's pruned so that now he can be genuinely fruitful. Abram is renamed Abraham, the father of a multitude. So his procreative strength is wounded. And now he's fit to bear the promise of God. Uh, Jeremiah, the prophet Jeremiah. Do I have it? Yeah, that's not Genesis, that's Jeremiah. Um, Prophet Jeremiah 17, verses 5 through 8. Yeah, thus says the Lord, Cursed is the man who trusts in mankind and makes flesh his strength. There's Abraham. Whose heart turns away from the Lord, for he will be like a bush in the desert and will not see when prosperity comes, but will live in stony wastes in the wilderness, a land of salt without habitation. The one who trusts in his own strength is barren, at least in relation to the promises and the work of God. But it goes on, blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord and whose trust is the Lord 
For he will be like a tree planted by the water that extends its roots by a stream and will not fear when the heat comes. But its leaves will be green, and it will not be anxious in, year, in a year of drought, nor cease to yield fruit. So the flesh, that is our natural strength and potency, is barren and impotent to bring about God's purposes. Mere human ingenuity and energy mean nothing to God. In fact, their hindrances, so long as we trust them, that need to be cut away. God refuses to work through our strength. Think of Samuel. Solomon, had, who looked every part of the king, had disobeyed God and had the kingdom removed from him. And God tells Samuel to go to the house of Jesse because the king is going to come from his sons. And Jesse brings his sons, and the first son is presented before Samuel, and Samuel sees him, and he says, Behold the anointed of the Lord. He looks like a king. He's tall. He's handsome. He's lordly in his demeanor. And Samuel says, This is him. This is it. But God says, No, you're looking with your eyes. I've rejected him. And said, I want little David, that weirdo over there with the sheep, He's going to be the king of Israel. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 27. God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong. The way to inherit the promise is never through our own strength, never through our own means, but always by faith and patience. Hebrews 6, 11 and 12 And we desire that each one of you show the same diligence so as to realize the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you will not be sluggish, but imitators of those who, through faith and patience, inherit the promise. So now circumcised, that's reoriented toward God in faith, Abraham is ready to inherit the promise. He's trusting in God. And Sarah's barren womb is opened, and she bears a son, and she names him as God commanded her, Isaac, meaning laughter. And at length, having been tested and cultivated by the word, Abraham and Sarah obtained the promise, a son through whom blessing will come to the world. Genesis chapter 21, verses 6 through 7. Sarah said, God has made laughter for me. Everyone who hears will laugh with me. And she said, Who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children, yet I have borne him a son in his old age? God's ways are not like our ways. And when he brings his promises to pass, we can only laugh. Who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse him children? Yet I have borne him a son in his old age. Now, believe it or not, there are philosophies or theories of humor, that is, attempts to understand what makes something funny, right? That's like dissecting the frog. It's no longer funny after you do that. But the most widely accepted theory is the theory of incongruity or the incongruity theory. Now, it's rather complex. Um, I had a heck of a time trying to figure out what it was saying. But it essentially argues that something is funny when it's not 
uh, when it's not in keeping with the surrounding environment, when it's out of place. So this is the humor of the ridiculous. It's the humor of the absurd. And it works because our minds are quite good at anticipating what comes next. Before the sentence is completed, before the action is done, you're observing it, your mind's already finishing it. It's already anticipating what comes next. And so when something absurd is introduced to what is otherwise routine, laughter ensues. Now, my wife told me this example wasn't funny. She already poked the air out of the balloon, but I'll give it anyway. Um, The routine part, it says, my grandfather died peacefully in his sleep, but the kids on his bus were screaming. That's the unexpected part, right? He fell asleep on the bus, right? And the kids, there you go. She was right. Um, So it's the incongruity, right? It's the absurdity of the barren and old woman and her good-as-dead husband having a son that causes Sarah to burst into laughter. That's not how things work, but that's how God works. And she says, God has made laughter for me. So the birth of Isaac, whose name means laughter, is God's joke upon the couple and beyond them, all those who are proud and unbelieving. God rejects the conventional and the expected, and instead he chooses the barren. He chooses the cowardly. He chooses the foolish to bring about his purpose. He destroys the wisdom of the wise. He brings to nothing the strength of the strong in his absurd and ridiculous ways. The joke is on our pride and our wisdom. And we can only laugh because this is how God works in the world. And the great joke, right, that brings laughter to all the world is the birth of our Lord Jesus Christ. He brings redemption and victory, not through pride, but through the humility of the stable and the manger. He brings redemption and victory, not through power, but through the weakness of a nursing infant. Not through the wisdom of the world, but the foolishness of the cross, as the Apostle Paul says. Baby Jesus is God's joke upon the world. He's rejected all worldly power and wisdom. And he's chosen to bring salvation through this virgin womb, unnoticed and disregarded in the backwaters of the empire, and this nursing child. God humbles the human race, not by showing us that he's more powerful than us. Of course he is. But by showing us that he can be weaker than us. As the Apostle Paul says, 1 Corinthians 1.25, the weakness of God is stronger than men. So I invite you then to the manger to behold the weakness of God to cast off your pride and strength, and to bow before the meek and humble Savior. Come and stand amazed, you people. See how God is reconciled. See his plans of love accomplished. See his gift, this newborn child. See the mighty, weak and tender. See the word who now is mute. See the sovereign without splendor. See the fullness, destitute 
And so to receive God's absurd and incongruous means of salvation, the baby son in the manger who's destined to bring salvation to the world through a crucified man, through that, the only way to receive it is that we have to learn to laugh. We have to learn to laugh our pride and wisdom and strength to scorn. It has to be circumcised, cut away in our own glad and amusing recognition that God has rejected it. God doesn't care about those things. They mean nothing to him. The Son of God, right? The King of kings and the Lord of lords become a nursing helpless infant forces a choice upon us. Either we welcome the joke and we laugh with God at our own pride and wisdom, or we turn away bitter. The joke is on us. God has nullified the strong and the wise in the imminent things of the world so that no man may boast before him. And so we accept the joke. We bow before the low-born king and we join in the laughter. We shout for joy at the foolish ways of God. He has made laughter for us in the incarnation of his son. We rejoice in the poverty of the nativity scene and laugh the riches of this world to scorn. God is committed to his promise to bless his creation. I know how wild and marvelous are his ways. So let us laugh with Jesus, our true Isaac. The joke is on us and we receive it gladly. So I'd like to invite you up now to receive the elements of communion, to take them back to your places, and I'll lead us in celebration in just one moment.